Hello and welcome to Women With Balls, where I, Katie Balls, talk to today's trailblazers. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Claire Fox. Fox is a writer and broadcaster, director and founder of the Academy of Ideas, regular panellist on the BBC's Moral Maze, and as of the weekend, the Brexit Party MEP for the North West England. A libertarian, Fox has spoken out frequently on the need for free speech and minimal government control in all parts of our lives. She has drawn criticism in her quest to do this, once suggesting that the government should not ban people from watching ISIS videos. A former member of the Revolutionary Communist Party, Fox has spoken of how surprised she was to find herself in the same party as former UKIP leader Nigel Farage when she joined the Brexit Party. I've spent my whole life fighting for left-wing causes, so I can tell you no one is more surprised than me to be standing as a candidate for Nigel Farage's Brexit Party. <laughs> to be honest, Nigel and I are unlikely to agree on a range of issues, workers, women's rights, immigration, public services. But, and it's a crucial but, on the key question of implementing Brexit, no ifs, no buts, on the crucial issue of honouring democracy, Nigel and I agree wholeheartedly. So thank you very much for joining us, Claire. Before we move on to the main bulk of the podcast, you've obviously had quite a weekend. (laughs) As of Bank Holiday Monday, you are now an elected politician and you're going to Brussels somewhere where I, I wouldn't say you particularly have much of a soft spot for. What's it like to be an elected politician? Well, first of all, I love Brussels, the city, so that'll be exciting and it's got some great museums. But no, I have never been in the European Parliament and I never wanted to go and I wanted to leave. So the idea that I'm not going to have to spend some time there is peculiar. And how does it feel to be an elected politician? Well, it obviously doesn't feel any different. Humbled, I got so many votes. That's that's brilliant. And it's kind of weird to have that endorsement, not as a personal endorsement, but just in were... terms of our Brexit Party candidates in the area. But we got a lot of votes and we won in a lot of areas in the northwest. So that was fantastic and exciting. Yeah, and it's it's weird sort of wandering around the streets and people congratulating me. I mean, on my way here, three people have congratulated me arbitrarily who I don't know. Now, you were well-known before, but would you say now you, you've reached a new level of fame following your foray into politics? Are, are you being stopped for selfies? What What is the level of yes. uh, going viral? Fame and infamy in equal measure. I've just made the point. People are stopping me for selfies, and that is peculiar. They mean it well, but it's odd and not something I was ever anticipating. Before I arrived here, I was listening to uh, Woman's Hour, dare I say it, and they said, and we have three prominent female Brexit party MEPs, my name came up. So I thought, oh, my God, they're talking about me. And in a way, that was a kind of odd thing. So rather than being on Women's Hour, I mean, discussed on Women's Hour. So it will be, it's not a position I feel happy with in terms of, you know, that side of it. But, you know, I have some very strong ideas and having a broader platform for them is not something I'm going to disparage because it's a great privilege. Do you know what you get in terms of an office yet? Mm. Well... It's one of the things I would want to check exactly. out first. Now, Staff. apparently, um, people may know that the European Parliament is a gravy train. Well, let me tell you it is. Um, the kind of uh, perks that you get if you're an MEP 
are the kind of reason I can see why people want this to be a job for life and that we'd never leave. However, it's also the case that we've been sent a huge amount of bureaucracy about how you access those perks. And I can imagine that in order to access those perks, one would need an army of staff uh, behind you, which is presumably why they give money for an army of staff. This is obviously not why I stood, yeah. and uh, except to know more about it and expose it. Um, but yes, there will at some point be offices, not not just in Brussels, but I will have a personal office in the northwest as well. Good. What's the top perk? That you oh, could I'd, get, is oh, anything? I don't, I don't know. I mean, we, no, people keep saying to me, oh, you're only doing this because you want the pension. I've never had a pension in my life. <laughs> I'm hoping I won't be long there long enough to claim it. But there's all sorts of... One of the things is that you get a certain amount of immunity for what you say. Apparently, you can have claim parliamentary privilege when you're travelling to Brussels or travelling away from it. So it makes me think that I could, like, natter away on the train and, and kind of claim parliamentary privilege i won't be doing that of course but i'm just pointing it out so now moving back a bit in time what we tend to do on this podcast is look at your early life going forward you grew up in a catholic family and attended a catholic school in wales were you religious oh no i was then god i was at university as well i was an active member of the catholic society for a while and i think once you're a catholic by the way you're a cultural catholic all your life and you know, I go to mass with my family when I go home and so on. So, but I, and in fact, Catholicism was very important for me uh, because it actually gave me, a, I think, a moral compass. And it made me, one of the things about going to, I mean, it was a Catholic comp in Flint in North Wales. And we had some brilliant teachers. It had gone from being a secondary modern to a comprehensive. And they were the kind of teachers who sort of, taught you in that inspiring way that you could be the first of your generation to go to university, which I was, and we were the first sixth form, um, cohort sixth form uh, in the school and so on. But they also introduced notions of moral complexity, which sounds very pretentious, but they really did, because you had to think about issues like abortion, contraception, you know, sex before marriage, all the things that one would have to think about. But it wasn't ever lectured to you, it was more that you had to engage in it. I thought it was very good training for what turned out to be my future career on the moral maze. And then from there, you went to Warwick University, where you studied English and American literature. At that point, did you want to be a writer? I think, oh, I mean, I, I, I wanted to be a poet. I did a creative writing course and it very soon became apparent that I couldn't write. So one of the great things about going to university is you learn what you can't do as well as what you can. Did a teacher break that to you? Yeah, yes, yes. Uh, the, my lecture in creative writing made it very clear that I was derivative and <laughs> rubbish, which uh, ruined that career point. But anyway, of course I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be the great novelist, the great poet. But anyway, that never occurred. Um, but, I, but I loved studying literature although I spent a huge amount of time at university n not attending lectures and seminars and generally being a political activist so what the what university introduced to me was this world of ideas in a way that I had dreamed of accessing but it wasn't necessarily through the seminar room straightforwardly but I read an enormous amount argued a huge amount and fully enjoyed the time and the great privilege of having three years there on a grant and so on I mean I I, I loved it and let's talk about the political journey you went on during university because when you arrived I think it's fair to say that you you weren't a member of the revolutionary communist party certainly not <laughs> in fact you you had voted Thatcher no uh, what what happened was that I was from a labour area still is a labour area although recently gone Brexit party but there we go in North Wales and the 
local steelworks were shot and steelworks were where all of my mates were going to go and do apprenticeships. And I went to a, a campaign meeting organised by the Labour Party in which the Labour MP vowed to never close down the steelworks and not a job would be lost. And promptly they closed down the steelworks and all the jobs went. And I sort of, in a very naive political way, said, I will never vote for the Labour Party. I, mean, I didn't consider myself to be left or right, didn't really know. And then Thatcher came along and... You know, she was a woman and she seemed different. And with as much thought as that, I voted for her, based on that I'm never voting Labour. So that's what happened there. I then went to one Federation of Conservative Students meeting at Warwick University and it was entirely apparent to them and to I that that was never going to be my home. What happened at the meeting? They were just... (laughs) They were far too right-wing for me. And I didn't even know what it meant. I mean, I just thought, oh... They were what the the Federation of Conservative Students in the late 70s and 80s, and there will be listeners who will be familiar with them, with the kind of people who put up stickers that said, hang Nelson Mandela around the university. I know, unsavoury, but it is also true. And, uh, yeah, so I thought, God almighty, who are these people? So, no, nothing in common with them. And I'd already rejected the Labour Party, and I got involved in... I I used to just be interested in politics. The union general meetings in those days attracted... I mean, I I say a 1,000 a week. Everybody says that's an exaggeration. But seven, 800 people. And in my first year, I sat at the back, listened to everybody and started to read and started to think. And I then thought, I think I'm interested in uh, far-left revolutionary politics. They're the people who inspired me most. I joined the Socialist Workers' Party, a well-trodden path. That didn't last... And I eventually ended up in the Revolutionary Communist Party. What took you from the Socialist Workers' Party to the Revolutionary Communist Party? What was the difference? So the Socialist Workers' Party, it seemed to me, were pretty superficial and used a lot of slogans and were very dogmatic and black and white. And the Revolutionary Communist Party, very differently, I thought, the publications that they wrote were challenging and interesting and they encouraged people to read and to think. And there was lots of discussion groups and... As you might have noticed, that's the sort of thing I was really interested in. So, you know, they're kind of much more interested in developing people to think philosophically. So I just read widely and I just loved that approach. And then from there, you became a, a very a key member, you, you could say, within that group for probably several years after. And in that time, you, you worked on various things. But what did it involve being an active member of the Revolutionary Communist Party? Well, that's a sort of, it's a peculiar one because, you know, I, I left university and I did like what lots of people do, which is I got jobs. I mean, I actually worked, I mean, nobody wants to talk about this. because it's in mental less, health? Well, right. first of all, I worked for the Cyrenians. I worked in a homeless shelter for months which probably was one of the most influential things that shaped my outlook more than anything certainly hardened me up and I became very interested in homelessness and mental health as a consequence I then worked and set up a drop-in centre for the recovering mentally ill run by Mind. I was like the youngest person that Mind had ever employed to do such a thing, and I did that for several years. I was passionate about it. So all of this time I was in the Revolutionary Communist Party, but being in the Revolutionary Communist Party does not mean that you kind of stop all of the things and never do anything. I I started doing some part-time teaching and literacy. I moved to Newcastle and did various... Basically, I was a kind of social worky type. So being in the Revolutionary Communist Party, what did it mean it meant that I sold a, a magazine living living Marxism I didn't write that much for it I wasn't very confident in my writing having been told by my tutor that my writing was not entirely 
top notch. But I developed my writing and I, but I'd sell magazines. I'd go to meetings. I'd go to other people's meetings. And, you know, during the miners' strike, you'd say that would be a very active thing. I spent a lot of time on picket lines, involved in strike action. I spent a lot of time working with the miners' wives groups, those kind of things. Now, bear with me, but just for those who haven't been following the movements of the far left closely during that era, I was wondering if you could lay out the difference between the revolutionary Communist Party and the Communist Party of Great Britain. The latter is one which Corbyn's advisor, Andrew Murray, used to be a member of. We were a Trotskyist organisation, and if you're a Trotskyist organisation, it meant that you thought that the, the Russian Revolution was sold out by Stalin. And Trotsky was killed for writing such a thing. And wrote a fantastic book, by the way, if anyone wants to read it, called Revolution Betrayed, which I thought, well, that book was quite influential on me, more that he even wrote it, because it took some guts. I mean, he'd been involved in a movement, it was your movement, you'd led world history, as far as he was concerned, and then you had to admit it had gone wrong. I mean, that takes some guts, because not only was he going to get killed for writing that book, but he also had to admit that maybe what he believed in had been betrayed, revolution betrayed and I kind of that made a big impact on me because I always vowed then to try and be honest to myself even if it, I mean I've never been as brave as that but I mean you know that sort of thing. Now you launched the magazine Living Marxism however it ended up closing after the publication was accused of fabricating allegations of Bosnian genocide. What was that experience like? So in 1997 approximately, when I was teaching in further education, because I'd gone on to be a further education lecturer in in literacy and in English, GCSE and A-level, I was having a year sabbatical. The Cold War had ended, the party just felt that was the end of that, and there was this magazine called Living Marxism. I was having a sabbatical from my teaching to do a PhD. But myself and my friend, Elena Goldberg, who was also doing a picture, decided rather madly that we would relaunch Living Marxism as LM magazine, a kind of different kind of current affairs magazine. We weren't trying to pretend it wasn't related to Living Marxism, which is why we called it LM. It had the same editor. And I think that practically every media editor in the country, it's front page news of every newspaper when we lost the libel case, was at that court case if we'd have been seen to be purveyors of fake news and liars and all the rest of it, I would not have ever had a journalistic career afterwards, which I did, because a lot of them saw what happened and made decisions about it, but it was certainly not the black and white story that's now told. And it's just vile, because, you know, people now have me explain, you know, murdering people have come up, every conspiracy theory. And because it's a libel matter, you, at the spectator, can't use it. You would be sued. You know, you can't go into the detail of it beyond what I've just said. But nobody's interested in that, are they? They just want to call me a genocide denier. That's that, And they're opponents of mine who want to do that. So that's what happens. It's one of the more galling aspects of being involved in politics. And uh, anyway, so that's that. Yeah. Do, you, do you regret running the story? No, no, not at all. I mean, I regret that we were sued for libel, but no, not at all. I mean, it was a it was a good story. I mean, we might have been naive about what libel law was. And ITM was a major news organisation and we were a small independent magazine and they demanded, by the way, that we trash all copies, apologise and, uh, and uh, you know, never repeat it again. And we just launched as a new magazine in defence of free speech. So what were we going to do, right? So we didn't. And we three years later, we lost the libel case. And all of this is very, very long into history. And I'd, I'm not objecting to you raising it, 
But it, you know, just like the past is a, a foreign country, it's not that I denounce or deny anything I thought then, but it's so different a time that it feels odd that I've had to discuss it so much in recent times simply because I'm standing for the Brexit party. One of the things that did happen when we were fighting the LM libel case was I did a lot of media work. And it was in that way that I actually ended up as a Moral Maze panellist while I was the publisher, co-publisher of LM magazine. So I'd started to become known as a, as a free press, free speech advocate. I got more radio things. And then I realised that that would be the sort of thing I'd like to do. Also as LM magazine, and um, we put on lots of public debates and discussions, and we used to call them LM Live because I really liked that idea of doing live events for a magazine. I know the spectator do them now, but let me assure you, I started it. And uh, they were very successful, big festivals on free speech and uh, culture wars and things like that. When the magazine went, I carried on doing that as um, uh, the Academy of Ideas. My colleagues in the editorial uh, group wanted to do magazines and publishing and they became spiked online I said I never want to publish a magazine again. it's been super libel online or offline I didn't really understand online magazines either they kept saying it'll be online and I was a bit oh I thought oh but who's going to print it anyway so they went off and did that so although I've never fallen out with my colleagues at spiked we are a separate enterprise uh, and with the academy of ideas what did you want to achieve I maybe it's because I'm an educator at heart. What I wanted to do was to show that politics didn't have to be full of sound bites and that there was always kind of more behind the headlines and that you could have interesting political discussions, no holds barred discussions and discussions that just kind of asked awkward questions and dug a bit deeper. So I wanted to reanimate the public square and I had a sort of secret desire that I wanted to educate a new generation of public intellectuals and uh, you know it's preposterous but in a way that's what I wanted I thought that I still think that we haven't got enough public intellectuals I didn't think I was one but I could see that you could create a space for allowing young people to get a different taste for what a political debate might be I felt by the way at the time that universities were beginning to sell the pass on that and there, there was more and more kind of I know it's crude to say it, but kind of political correctness or people being wary, even then. And you've got to remember this was Blair's Labour Party era. There was kind of real nanny statism coming in. And I, and that was kind of considered to be the left of politics. And I wanted to say beyond left and right, let's have these discussions with a bit more depth. So we've experimented with ways of doing that throughout the time. And um, we've touched on student politics and obviously the scene when, when you were a student. So... What do you make of student politics now? Do you think that, I mean, we hear a lot about snowflakes, you know, people who, who want to shut down debate, but do you see any hope in what's going on at these universities? Well, you know, one of the things that, you know, made me most proud of because of my Warwick University tutor saying I couldn't write. By the way, the Warwick University tutor that said that was Andrew Davis, the famous Andrew Davis. So he did know what he was talking about. So this is not a bitter moment. But anyway, I wrote a short book a few years ago called I Find That Offensive. And then it's been republished as I still find that offensive. And it was actually addressed to and about the so-called snowflake generation. And I tell that story because... The most gratifying thing that's happened about that book was an attempt to try and understand why young people would want to demand safe spaces, safety and protection from ideas and, and, and words and so on. I wanted to understand why that was. But the gratifying thing was how many young people liked the book. And I constantly get invited now to universities 
by people who sort of say it's great liberation to ever talk about the fact that our generation has got stuck in this kind of censorious mess and the mess of identity politics. So I see a huge amount of hope. I think there's a much greater opening up. I also think, and this is interesting in relation to Brexit, that, you know, it is true that there's been a generational divide on Brexit, but it's really changed in the last year or so. More and more times that I speak at sixth forms or at universities, I'll find people who say, well, you know, I, I probably didn't really know what the EU was like. Uh, now I know I'm much more on your side. And this is left and right, by the way. And also people noted the way the voters were turned on. And so I've had experiences of students saying, well, of course, I voted Remain, but my mum from Sunderland set up the local leave group and she's been called a racist. And I think that's not fair. And so they were kind of questioned. So I feel as though there's a, just a bit of a gap opening up there, which is quite exciting. And that leads us nicely on to the Brexit party. You probably made probably some of the most headlines of any candidate in the Brexit party in terms of their MEP candidates. That was in part because you sit on the left of politics and lots of people thought this was a reinvented version of UKIP initially. It was the Nigel Farage show and it suggested that actually this was a, a wider a wider issue all because it in a way seems like a single issue, which is yeah. do you want Brexit to be delivered? It can attract people that UKIP probably couldn't. I was wondering, did you get much flack when you came out as a candidate for the Brexit party? Oh, or, or are um, you quite used to that? Um, I am used to it. I shouldn't have been surprised. I think what most shocked me was people that I knew and respected and got on quite well with. And I realised that maybe what ha happened was that over the time that I've been running the Academy of Ideas, I've gained a certain amount of respect in the kind of liberal left media circles, intelligentsia circles. I wouldn't exactly say that they're my greatest fans, but, you know, that's kind of broadly what's happened. And people do, you know, certainly people on the free speech side of the left have been sort of, you know, we've kind of worked well together. And this was a step too far, you know. And, you know, people actually said to me, that's a step too far, as if I needed to get their permission or, you know, <laughs> that kind of what... And I've been treated as an apostate, and it's been very unpleasant. And on social media, people that have always had quite a positive interaction with... So I don't mean the trolls, and I don't mean the nasty thing. But we're not talking egg accounts. No, no, we're, we're, we're talking about people who I just didn't expect to be quite so savage. They've excavated the past, of course, that's been their kind of favourite topic. But, but what's been really interesting is watching those people creating a narrative of me being this, I can't decide whether it's kind of McCarthyite anti-communism. I mean, it's hard to know what exactly they're accusing me of. But, you know, all the genocide denial stuff, all that stuff has come out. And some very vile things, which I feel, if you were to talk about anything in detail, and I feel that they must know this is like a caricature of anything I've ever said about anything. And also, I've been in the public sphere for 20 years. I mean, you only have to listen to every Moral Maze podcast to know what I think about things. Not like as I've been quiet. I've got endless speeches that are all on YouTube. People come and look at them. And then suddenly they're like, oh, my God, Cleffels is a lunatic. And so they, they don't, <laughs> they've only just discovered this. Anyway, but what then happened was that narrative got picked up, would you believe it, by my opponents in the Northwest, Tommy Robinson and UKIP. So you've got this unholy alliance of a kind of left-created narrative of people who are opposed to Brexit and furious that somebody like me would, as they would say, 
enable for eyes to be successful get, give um, it some credibility on a different exactly audience, and we yeah. can go back to that but then then that gets picked up by a very unpleasant unsavory crowd who then sort of have kind of run with it so that was an interesting turn of events but on on the on whether i did enable i mean one thing although i'm most maybe most prominent one way or another there's actually a really widespread of candidates and uh, i think that nigel farage takes some needs to take some credit for that because this is so not UKIP Mark II. And what everyone thinks about UKIP, it just isn't the same. You know, the number two candidate in the North West is a, a Danish socialist dentist who only treats NHS patients and won't treat private patients, which is pretty hardcore of a particular type. You know, it's got a great gender mix and ethnic minority mix and religious mix amongst the candidates without anyone doing a box ticking exercise which is quite impressive because I think what it reflects is who voted Brexit because actually loads of people voted Leave it's only not just one type and I think that the fury that has been engendered amongst millions of voters about the fact that Brexit didn't happen has been sold out and so on was reflected by a kind of list of largely professionals but across the board candidates who just said do you know I'm so fed up with this I want to do something and so I think that's been quite impressive and who approached you to stand as a candidate or did you see it coming up on the horizon and decide to put yourself forward no, no I was approached I didn't approach but I I think what happened was that I was approached to speak at the leave means leave rally on the 29th of March and I was so depressed about that date being sold. I mean, I actually, I did, or I did used to do Sky Paper Review. And this, I think one of the last Sky Paper Reviews I did, I just said, game's over, you know, they're just never going to let us leave. And lots of people on Twitter were saying, don't you give up if you give up. That's terrible. Because I really was so, I was demoralised myself, even though I kind of knew what was happening. I just felt, they can't be this bad, these politicians. Anyway. When I was asked to speak at that rally, I thought this is a chance to say something a bit more positive and there'll be lots of hundreds of thousands of people. It wasn't tens of thousands of people to get it right. I just wanted to prove that we still had a bit of go in us, but I knew it would mean sharing a stage with Nigel Farage, which was quite a big thing for me to decide to do. And also to share a stage with, you know, Ian Paisley Jr. and a variety of ERG I mean, you know, and I was thinking, ooh. And uh, Kate Howey was going to speak and Paul Embry, the trade unionist who I adore from the FBU. And I thought if they had the courage that I would have the courage too. So I did that. And then the speech went down surprisingly well amongst an audience of maybe 40 or 50,000. Incredibly, I went on Newsnight that night and the green room was full of people saying that how unsafe they felt walking past the Leave Means Leave March because it was full of Tommy Robinson and racist supporters. And I said, different march, different event. I spoke at that. And the people in the green room were, again, people I knew. And they kind of all looked at me like, what are you talking about? And I think that I got a taste of what it would be like to be branded far right, even in plain sight that wasn't true. But it kind of made me a little bit determined. So I was approached. I said no initially, and then I changed my mind. Um, I mean, I've seen you speaking at a Brexit rally. I came up to Bolton, and you won a standing ovation, dedicating your speech to philosophers and plumbers, as well as some other occupations. And you quoted Tony Benn. Have, have you been surprised by the level of support? It does seem like you're one of the big hits from the, from the Brexit rally tours, and your speeches definitely have a, a left-wing tilt to them. Yeah, I, well, I'm not that surprised because I knew that lots of people on the left voted 
leave and they were just frightened to admit it or they were sidelined in the debate which tried to delegitimise the leave vote as being somehow racist or xenophobic little Englander in right wing. So I think that there's a tradition in the Labour movement um, Tony Benn is obviously the best known proponent of it, but he's certainly not alone, which which was strongly Eurosceptic. I mean, the left, the left in this country has always been historically anti the EU as a top-down imposition of you know the boss's interests, if you want to put it crudely. But you know, largely actually on the democracy point, recognition that national sovereignty was what gave. Popular sovereignty, the one person, one vote, it's legitimacy. And if you didn't have that, you you were squandering the possibility that the plumber equaling the philosopher. So I think what happened was is that that was well known and it was abandoned once the referendum was called. And so the left have got themselves in a very unsavoury position. But that of, of being basically on the wrong side of history, in my view. Um, uh, to quote Larry Elliott from The Guardian, who, who's actually a left Eurosceptic. And he made the point, you know, we, we, we made a mess of that. We, we, you know, we had this opportunity. And I think this election, we had an opportunity again. And what was fantastic was the recognition of that by voters. And then the recognition by, as it were, maybe conservative voters, that there was also a left-wing tradition, because they then suddenly realised, oh, actually, this isn't a left-right thing at all. And so it, it created this really fantastic sense of solidarity. It was really enjoyable. And I tried in the speeches to, I mean, slightly adding in the odd gobbit quote, but I tried to put something of the Enlightenment tradition and freedom in there. And, you know, it's really nice because some young lad said to me the other day, you know, what lock should I read? And I thought, yeah, job done. Not exactly, but you know what I mean? I mean, that's what you want. Sylvia Pankhurst, you know, popularising that, all of these kind of things, was what I also wanted to do. Now, you mentioned before having things in your past dredged up, and I was wondering if you've been surprised by the level of scrutiny you've received since standing to be an elected politician, because we did see one Brexit party candidate drop out of the race because due to past comments you had made on the IRA Warrington bomb attacks, and there was a claim that you, that you hadn't properly apologised for those when, when asked to. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, it's, it's worth saying that this story is a slightly more complicated one than people know, and I'm not going to go into all the details now. That'll be for my memoirs. But anyway, one thing that you can say is that the demand was that I denounced the publication that had said that they supported the right of the Irish people to conduct their war as they saw fit. That was the kind of thing. I can't remember the exact phrase, but... The point was, was I was at, well, first of all, I was asked to apologise as though I'd planted a bomb... I never planted a bomb. I thought the murder of those children in Warrington was terrible. But what the demand was, was that I denounced that phrase and that I say that I didn't agree with that phrase. Now, I believed that in good faith as a, an anti-imperialist at the time. And I also supported Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela was not in jail because he drank tea. He was part of an armed anti-imperialist group called the ANC and had a similar approach to him. Times have moved on. And the Good Friday Agreement in Ireland has brought a welcome peace and the Irish war is over. And people have tried to imply that I support the dissident IRA that recently murdered a journalist. I absolutely don't. But you can't, any attempt at subtlety on this question goes out the window. And when you say, am I surprised by the scrutiny? No, that's fair enough, isn't it? I'm surprised by the bad faith scrutiny. 
I'm, a, I'm surprised that that was attempted to be used, that an, a political opponent doorstopped Mr Colin Parry, whose child was murdered, and asked him to comment on something that was in a magazine that I sold 25, 26 years ago. I mean, did they do that because they cared about Mr Colin Parry? I don't now, just a few final thoughts to wrap up this podcast. Looking forwards, we've heard Nigel Farage say that after coming top in the EU elections, his sights are firmly set on Westminster and the Brexit party triumphing in a general election. Now, you've made very clear that you disagree with Nigel Farage on many things. So one of the criticisms of moving to a general election fitting is what would the Brexit party stand for if it had to come up with domestic policies? Do you think that you'll be able to stay with the Brexit party in a general election fitting once it comes up with taxation ideas? I mean, he's suggested that they'd be against H- HS2, perhaps scrapping a licence fee. But w- once you, you know have views on the NHS and so forth. So it, it, it's slightly depending. I mean, this is the million dollar question for a lot of people in the Brexit party, not just me. But listen, I'm, I'm relatively optimistic because a, a number of things. First of all, it's been made clear not just by Nigel Farage, actually, but in general, that it won't be a straightforward manifesto because, as has been pointed out, you know, every other party has those and they just betray them, so what's the, there's no point fetishising that. I think that I would be wary of kind of being overly specific on policies myself. I think there's a broad set of principles that could be agreed. But, you know, like, I, I say, for example, I'm, you know, I'm pro-choice and pro-women's rights, and, you know, Anne Widdicombe and I probably wouldn't agree on that any more than we'd agree on Ireland, right? I mean, you know what I mean? Like, we're talking about a lot of things that would separate us. But I think that you could have... I would want to have things like, you know, open public conversations on the future of democratic uh, reform. You know, should we abolish or reform the House of Lords? You know, those kind of things. But also it could be on, uh, let's have a, a big public conversation on civil liberties, all of these kind of things. Because one of the things that really struck me during the campaign, which I shouldn't be surprised by, but really sharpened up in my mind, was the appetite for political discussion amongst the electorate. And not at a crude level. What they want to do, when people say they want their voice hearing, it's not in some patronising way. You know, They actually want the conversations about the future of politics today. And, and I think that the Brexit Party could try and develop a policy in the long run by opening up the conversations with the electorate and not being overly forced into a situation where it has to have a list of eight things to vote for us in the general election because I think that will, if it becomes Tory party light, and nobody wants that, by the way, that won't work. And if it becomes, you know, it's got to be open about it. I also hope that there'll be a kind of non-whippable situation so that if there's, a, you know, so that I can carry on because I've been elected on a particular, not manifesto, but on a particular outlook in relation to Brexit and democracy, and I have every intention of carrying on agreeing with the Brexit party on that in the European Parliament, so I don't really... I've got no intentions of breaking with the Brexit party. I'm, I'm actually quite excited. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm quite excited that a new party is trying to do things differently and that the feeling of camaraderie amongst the candidates 
is quite something, you know. I mean, I'm quite surprised, but it's just genuinely like, let's try and make this work. And when you look at the infighting, the civil wars that are taking over all of the main parties, and even amongst the kind of remain camp of the Lib Dem hating change UK and all that sort of thing, never mind what's happening in the Labour Party and the Tory Party, I think, God, this is quite refreshing. We might be able to do something here that does go beyond left and right in just the same old labels. Let's give it a go. What type of Brexit would you be happy with or would you call Brexit? Do you think it has to be a no-deal Brexit? I think at this stage it does. It's not like that that's your... I mean, first of all, I don't... I mean, I think it's clean-break Brexit. And that... um, WTO terms. Yeah, clean-break Brexit, but also because I think... I'm hoping that there'll be lots of deals done after it. So the no-deal kind of almost implies you kind of wander off into the wilderness and never talk to anyone I think it's more that we've been forced into that situation by the utter, you know, both incompetence, but also kind of almost willful inability for the present government to have negotiated anything other than that awful tyranny of a treaty that nobody likes and that will leave no sense of sovereignty in existence. So because of that, and because I think we have to leave fast, because otherwise the electorate are going to become incredibly despondent about democracy. I would go for just walking away. I think it's the only thing that we could now trust. Now, if when you walk away, we say, right, OK, we're going, the European Union phone up and say, do you want to chat? Right. Um, as a trade union negotiator of old, I found that works quite well. I found that if you go in and say no compromise, this is what, sorry, we're, we're going on strike forever until you, you know, and walk out the room that generally a phone call happens relatively quickly afterwards from an employer that has said that they're not going to negotiate or discuss anything. So I think that that is one of the reasons why you can't take no deal off the table, as was said. But maybe if they don't phone you, you walk away, right? And I don't think it's the end of the world. And a lot of great economists have pointed out that a lot of the scaremongering about no deal Brexit are just that. I don't mean it won't be a challenge and one of the other things that you can say about the electorate was once we didn't leave by the 23rd of what it was 29th of I can't remember what month March. it was March. 29th of March we are supposed to once we didn't leave by that the electorate went no deal all the way you know the leave voters before that I think they might have accepted a deal just to get it over and done with and to have fulfilled the date but now they won't now they're prepared and people are saying things like we don't care what it does to the economy it's worth it it's worth it it's worth it because people now see that sense of fulfilling the democratic mandate is far more important than anything else in British politics and then just two two quick things firstly are your family happy to have an MEP in the family (laughs) Um, silence. No, <laughs> uh, I think it's a, a challenge, but they've been remarkably enthusiastic. And, you know, I hope she won't mind me saying, but one of my sisters and her partner were um, voted Remain, very strong Remain, and now they're Brexit. And that's not by, because of me, by the way, it's because of the last three years, but it was very nice that they then sort of were so supportive because I wasn't sure. And, you know, my family in Ireland, of which I've got a lot, are utterly, utterly bemused, some of them incandescent. I mean, you know, they're Southern Irish, they're supporters of the EU. But despite that, I keep getting messages of congratulations, so I think they'll kind of cope. So you'll still stay on the Christmas card list? I'm on the Christmas card list. And then final question. We've spoken about how you don't want to be in Brussels, well, at least in the Parliament side of it, for, for very long. 
if we do get a no deal Brexit at the end of October, are you happy to say this is my political career over? I'm now going to go back to the Academy of Ideas. Or would you want to stick around? Yeah, no. Uh, first of all, I'm not leaving the Academy of Ideas. Yeah, for my colleagues, for my for my colleagues listening, because they have a panic, and I'm going to still be organising or one of the key organisers of the Battle of Ideas Festival. I obviously have got less time, so I have to get work with other people on that. Our big Battle of Ideas Festival at the Barbican, second and third of November, come along. But no, I don't think I will have an appetite for political life. I don't. I don't want to be an elected politician. I feel. I think there are times in history where you feel that you can't just talk, you've got to act, and this was one of those times. But my action was to prove that the left needed to stand up for democracy and could not abandon voters, and I think that I will have done that. And therefore, I've got no ambitions to be an elected politician, so I'm really hoping we leave by the 31st of October, personally, never mind politically. What it will be interesting is to see what will happen in terms of the media. You know, I... It will be interesting to see whether the moral maze will want me back. It will be interesting to see. I feel as though the media, and this is why it's lovely to do this interview, by the way, is, is refreshing because I'm, and I'm going to write something for a blog for The Spectator on this very issue. One of the things that's really annoying is when people who you know in the media then start thinking that you're suddenly going to have lost any attempt at engaging intellectually in ideas and think you're going to kind of give party answers. And you think... Only the party only existed six weeks ago. I haven't had personality change um, because I think it's very important that public life and politics is not reduced to that kind of banal sound bites. But I will feel freer and happier when I'm able to do what I do best, which is try and think out loud and muddle my way through and have a lot of people <laughs> listening to the moral maze going, shut that woman up or she's really interesting. But at least it kind of gives them food for thought. Thanks, Claire, and thanks for listening. And if you like this podcast, please do subscribe on the iTunes store. And also, please leave us a review, because we'd love to hear what you make of it. And we have other episodes in the back catalogue, which include discussions with Andrea Ledsom, Liz Truss, Kay Burley, Emma Barnett, and much more. And while we have you here, one more plug, which is that we would love to hear general feedback on our podcasts. And that could be coffee house shots free to Americano, free to women with balls. Just email podcast at spectator.co.uk.